fifth and final lesson of the middle part of a series that we have called Why We Believe. And part one of the series, as it's been repeated several times, dealt with our belief in the existence of God, the fact that God is. Uh, beginning next Sunday, we will, the Lord willing, enter into the third part of this study. And that third part will show why we believe in the deity of Jesus. That Jesus is God. Uh, completely God. As much God as the Father, as much God as the Spirit. We'll be seeing that in the next several lessons. Now, in this middle part of the study, the first four lessons have focused on reasons to believe the Bible is God's Word. There is a God. He has revealed Himself to man in several different ways, including through words. And we have talked in previous lessons about inspiration. That is, how the Bible shows itself to be more than a human document that it affirms for itself, and that affirmation is backed up by many different avenues of thought, that even though human writers may have penned the words of the Bible, they were not the source of those words. They came from a divine source. And so the Scriptures, we believe, are God's words. Not human words. God's words. We saw how... The Bible is, it has a unity about it. It is 66 different documents, and yet it is one complete book. And God, in that 66 writing, shows us everything we need for life and godliness. It shows us where we came from and what we're supposed to be doing now and where we're headed. He gives us all of that. And incidentally, he gives it to us in a, in a form in which we can not only use it, but it's not overwhelming. I, I have often thought, and I've mentioned this before, if a human writer were to have penned these 66 books, you wouldn't just be holding one volume like this. You'd probably have a library full of books. But, but the scriptures, though they are united, are economical. There are many things that are not told us because we don't need to be told those things. We also saw in the third lesson how prophecies were fulfilled in detail and exactly as they were prophesied. One of the true marks of the genuineness of the Bible is that men, sometimes centuries before the fact, told what was going to happen and it happened just as they told it. They were not simply good guessers. They were not simply people who had some kind of vision about the future. God showed what would happen, and it did happen. And then last time we saw some amazing facts that are recorded in God's Word. Long before scientists, medical people, and others understood these things, God had stated them. And, and uh, so archaeology... Uh, has helped us also in this regard 
to confirm things that sometimes were doubted by men because they had not found in historical documents the names of people in certain situations. But over the years, as archaeologists have unearthed these things, every discovery has been supportive of the Bible. Archaeology is always the friend of the Bible. There are no examples that you can show that say, look what they dug up, and this shows the Bible is not correct. Every one of them shows the Bible is exactly right. In this lesson, we're going to talk about the trustworthiness of the Bible. And that is a very serious matter because if we cannot trust the Bible, then we have no real divine guidance. This, this book claims to be divine guidance. If it's not trustworthy, you can't depend on it. You might as well throw it in the trash because if it's not truly from God, if it's not truly a trustworthy book, then it's a lie. Because the truth is, it claims that it can guide us. And if it can't, then it's not dependable, it's not trustworthy. If we can trust the Bible, we have a way to make it through life by going to it to find out how to do it. Many of you are familiar with Jeremiah 10, 23. The ancient words are like this, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. There may be people who don't believe that. And obviously there are people who don't. They think, I can, I can do it myself. I can figure out what I should do and I can guide my own path. Now we've seen how that works. We've seen the results of of people choosing their own path rather than the path that God sets for them. It always winds up wrong. And so the question this morning is, can the Bible that is in your possession really be trusted? Can you trust this as God's Word? Now, critics would say no. People who don't believe the Bible would say there is no way that, a, that you can have a reliable Bible after so many centuries. I mean, we recognize that more than 1,600 years ago, things began to be written for our benefit that claimed to be from God. And, and they would say, well, you can't trust the Bible because those things didn't really get to us as they should have. We say the Bible is reliable. Uh, and we believe, even though it was written long ago, that any honest person who looks carefully at the evidence will see that it meets the scrutiny. It, 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 it passes the test. And, and God has seemingly arranged for us to have a lot of collaborative things that say, put these all together and what do you have? A reliable Bible. Now, how do we know that the text of our Bible is reliable since we don't have the original autographs? By autographs, I mean not what you get from a baseball player. I mean the original handwritten documents that started all of this, what Moses wrote, what 
others wrote along the way. We don't have those. We freely admit that. We don't have those. But let me ask this question. How do you know what is in the Declaration of Independence? How do you know what Lincoln said in the Gettysburg Address? I would say the only way you know or I know is by copies of those documents. Now, the Declaration of Independence exists. It does. Some of you have seen it, likely. But, but let me tell you what it doesn't do for us who haven't seen it. it doesn't, if we haven't seen it, we don't know what it, it says. But I found an interesting article, and I want to share just a little bit with you. A woman by the name of Heather Phillips wrote, Safety and Happiness, the Paradox of the Declaration of Independence. Here are her words. I am standing at the rotunda of the National Archives looking down at the Declaration of Independence. As we all know, this is an extremely famous and important document, and I am filled with all the appropriate awe and wonder, diminished only slightly, listen, by the fact that the Declaration of Independence is essentially a blank piece of paper. They never tell you that in school. It has faded to the point that the only immediate, immediately recognizable words are in giant, in Congress, at the top, and John Hancock's, John Hancock. This is because for the first century or half century or so, after it was signed, it was displayed on the walls of various government buildings in the sun and elements. And so even if you went to Washington, and even if you were able to look physically at the Declaration of Independence, you couldn't tell what it said. How would you know what it said unless somebody had made a copy of it, and a copy of it, and a copy of it, and you read it somewhere from a copy? So if somebody gets upset and saying, well, we don't have the original autographs that we can read, and we can say, well, there they are. Well, we depend a lot on copies of things, don't we? to believe that we know what was originally said. Now let me say this, and I'm going to preface this by the fact that this is my opinion, and you know how much that's worth. I personally believe that there is a very sound reason why none of the autographs of the Bible have survived. If we had all of the original copies, everything that Moses had wrote, and Daniel, and Matthew, and Mark, if we had all of the originals, what would happen? Well, perhaps the same thing that happened to the Jews in the Old Testament. If you look at Numbers, the 21st chapter, for just a minute. Numbers 21. <clears throat> Numbers 21. Beginning at verse 5. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food or, and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Incidentally, they were taking a real chance, weren't they? This worthless bread. Sound like some people today who get bread for free and still call it worthless bread. 
They didn't pay for the manna. It was given to them. So the Lord sent fiery serpents, verse says, among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. It's God's grace. Look, they sinned, God punished them, Moses made this bronze serpent, and it served a purpose. Now, from that, would you please go to 2 Kings, at a later date, 2 Kings, Remember, this, this originally is the time of the children of Israel. 2 Kings 18, children of Israel in the wilderness. It's going to be a long time, 40 years or so, before they get to the promised land. They're going to go through judges. They're going to go through kings. But when you get to 2 Kings 18, if you'll look now at verse 4, 18.4, talking about the work of Hezekiah during his reign. He removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars, cut down the wooden image, and notice, and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the children of Israel burned incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Nehushtan, not bronze thing. (laughs) They called it the bronze thing. But they burned incense to it. That's a form of worship. And so they had taken this thing made by God to give them deliverance from their sins and they had set it up and they were worshiping it rather than the God who gave it. That's exactly what would happen if we had the original autographs of the Bible. Oh my. First of all, what government would have them? We'd have wars over who had them. And whoever had them would be so concerned about their safety that they would, of course, have guards everywhere. But that wouldn't keep people from falling down before them to worship those original documents. God never intended His Word to be a museum piece. We do not practice, some have accused us of it, we don't practice bibliolatry. We don't worship the Bible. Yes, we recognize it as God's Word and we respect it and we understand that through it we learn what we must do. But we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God who gave us the Bible. So how has God made sure that we would have a reliable form of the Bible? I'm going to give you a couple of things. First of all, it starts by the use of scribes. A scribe is a person, it was not limited to Judaism, a scribe was a person who copied a document to another source. Here's the document, he reads it, he writes it again, so that there is a copy of it. And part of this was because in ancient days, that which started as original would not last. The preservation of documents is a relatively recent thing in history. Men didn't know a lot about preserving documents as we know today. 
Now, they were some were able to use more wisdom than others. But, but there was some difficulty. Now, Jewish scribes, those who worked as scribes who were Jews, took their work seriously. They were not just copyists of the Bible. They were copyists of important documents, court documents, divorce documents, other things. Remember in the book of Esther that uh, the king can't sleep and he wants to do some reading and he didn't have a Zane Gray to read and so he goes and he reads documents, probably copies of documents of, hist- of history. Okay. Jewish scribes who were copying biblical documents took their work so seriously because they understood, they believed in their hearts that they were not copying men's words, but God's words. If they had just been copying something that happened in court, they would have been very careful. They were always careful. But they wouldn't have had the same respect for that court document that they had for what they considered to be the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And and they went to some extraordinary measures to not only show respect, but to make sure that they were accurate in their copies. Um, Let me me show you this. The, The details by which they did their work, included counting verses. I don't know if this is on your lesson sheet or not. It may be. Letters and words in the source document. By doing that, if they would count the the letters, the verses, the words, they would know exactly where the middle of the book should be that they were copying. And periodically, they would count those verses, words, and letters in their copy. And if they did not match the original document, they destroyed their document. It wasn't worthy of going on. That's how, that's how serious they were about it. But let me go a step further. Those Jewish scribes, and these were not, and I'm not necessarily saying these are the same ones that copied the, the scriptures, uh, in the ultimate way that we get them. But those who did copy the Pentateuch called the Torah. Torah means instruction or teaching and it refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. Those who copied that material, here's the process they went through. Listen to this. They could only use clean animal skins both to write on and even to bind manuscripts. Each column of writing could be no less than 48 and no more than 60 lines. The ink must be black and of a special recipe. They must say each word aloud while they were writing it. They must wipe the pen and wash their entire bodies before writing the most holy name of God. You know, in the Old Testament, the the letters Y-H-V-H, which we have translated Jehovah, when they would come to that word, they would lay down their pen, take a bath, because they understood that was a holy reference to God. They did that every time they wrote His names. 
There must be a review within 30 days, and if as many as three pages required corrections, the entire manuscript had to be redone. The letters, words, and paragraphs, and I told you, had to be counted, and the document became invalid if two letters touched each other. The middle paragraph, word, and letter must correspond to those of the original document. The documents could be stored only in sacred places, in other words, synagogues, later. As no document containing God's Word could be destroyed, they were stored or, or buried in, in a safe place. You never destroyed it. You always tried to keep it. But you kept it in a safe place. I tell you, that's, that's an extraordinary determination to make sure that what you are copying is copied correctly. Now, that's, that's one that's one evidence, I think. The next is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And you may have done some reading on the Dead Sea Scrolls. An amazing thing happened in 1947. A young boy who was looking for a lost goat discovered a cave on the northwest side of the Dead Sea. And he took a rock and threw it in the cave and heard something break. And it was a clay jar... And in that clay jar was a scroll. Well, obviously, there was excitement over that. Archaeologists and others began to uh, look desperately for other caves and clay jars, and they found hundreds of them in the very same area. Now, these were not all just copies of the Scripture. Some of them were documents of other kinds and and other historical matter, but many of them were Scripture. In fact, if you took all of the scrolls of the Dead Sea and put them together, the entire Old Testament could be produced with the exception of the book of Esther. And when they began to date these scrolls to find out their age, it was found that these must have been written sometime between 200 B.C. and 60 A.D. Now, they're all of the Old Testament. Well, why is that significant? Because before this time, before 1947 and the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, before this time, the earliest known manuscript that had survived dated back only to about 1,000 B.C. Here's 1,000 B.C., And here is 200 B.C. or even into the lot past the lot of Christ. It's a lot of difference. And and, and what did they find out when these Dead Sea Scrolls were examined? Well, I can tell you one thing. When they were first discovered, the critics said, here's our chance to show the Bible is worthless. We'll just see how many changes there are. If if, if we find a copy of Isaiah, it won't match what Isaiah wrote in, in the earlier manuscript. Incidentally, the earlier manuscript is called the Masoretic Text. What did they find? Well, what they found was it confirmed the accuracy of the text. The differences between the Masoretic Text of 1000 B.C. and the Dead Sea Scrolls were so minor 
that they only involved a couple of variations of spelling, a few added or deleted words that had, listen, nothing to do with anything doctrinal. Gleason Archer is in, was a scholar, is a scholar. Listen to the comment that he made between the similarities of these two. Even though the two copies of Isaiah discovered in Qumran, that's the place, Cave 1 near the Dead Sea in 1947, were a thousand years earlier than the oldest dated manuscript previously known, they proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the texts. Only 5% variation considered consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. Wayne Jackson, who's a member of the Lord's Church, wrote this. Of the 166, 166 words in Isaiah 53, there are only 17 letters, not words, letters in question. Ten of these letters are simply a matter of spelling, which does not affect the sense. Four more letters are minor stylistic changes, such as conjunction, and the remaining three letters comprise the word light, which is added in verse 11 and does not affect the meaning greatly. Thus, in one chapter of 166 words, there is only one word, three letters, in question after a thousand years of transmission. And this word does not significantly change the meaning of the past. Now, what I want you to understand is this. The Masoretic text of a thousand B.C. and these copies in 200 to 60 A.D., they weren't the only copies. But, but there had been copies made of copies, made of copies, made of copies, and here you have now in 200 B.C. or later, the same thing. How's that, how's that possible? It's possible by very, very careful concern that the Word of God is translated correctly. Now, we go back to the point about there's a couple of variations. And, and, and I've done enough study on this. You can do the same thing. You can find your own sources if you want, but... But the, the differences in manuscripts are so minuscule they're almost impossible to discover. You have to remember this. Human, copyists were humans, right? Copyists were human. They could make mistakes. And if you don't believe that's true, let me tell you what I could do this morning. I won't do it because I don't want to embarrass myself or you. I could take a sheet of paper and I could write two paragraphs. And I could hand it to Janice and I said, now you take your own sheet of paper and you copy what I wrote. And then she'd give her copy to Maria who on another sheet of paper make a copy. Then to Robert, we'd go all through. And I'm telling you, by the time that thing got back to me, I probably couldn't recognize it. If you don't believe that's true, you try it sometimes in a circle. You know, you, and you know what? Somebody, if I said, if I signed my name Alan, A-L-L-E-N, somebody would write A-L-A-N, or they'd write A-L-L-A-N, or bum, or something, 
You, you, you just know that there have to be sometimes, and, and if you understand anything about the Hebrew alphabet, there are little diacritical markings sometimes, very small letters. But the fact that you can say the Bible was so carefully transmitted through the ages has to show that they were serious in doing it, and they got it right. And I will say this, and I'm not going to dwell on this, okay? Somebody said, oh, the Bible's full of mistakes. You need to say, show me one. What kind of mistakes are you talking about? They can't. Likely, they couldn't show you one mistake. They've heard somebody say it, and so they believe it. It's strange that they wouldn't say the Bible's accurate because they could have heard that too and they could have believed that. But when pressed to say, okay, what kind of mistake is this? Is it a mistake of somebody transposing two letters? You ever do that? Man, that takes me a long time to type on the computer. I have to do a lot of correction. I'm glad we don't have whiteout anymore because I'd have to buy the whole company to use it. But... But we can make mistakes easily, but they were very careful. And so, you have the scribes, you have the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the third evidence of all of this is manuscripts. A manuscript is a handwritten copy of something. There are 5,748 manuscripts of the New Testament that have survived. 5,740. 170 of those manuscripts date as far back as the 2nd century A.D. What do those manuscripts show? Well, what they show is that there is a lot of, a, a lot of cohesion, a lot of things that are exactly the same. Again, some variations. Some manuscripts are better than others. But the still overwhelming evidence is if you put all these together and the majority of them say the same thing, then what conclusion must you reach? That is what is supposed to be there. And then the fourth thing is that there are early translations of the Bible. I'm talking about not just copied word from Hebrew to Hebrew to Hebrew or Greek to Greek, but there are translations of the Bible, and they, some of these are very early. The Syrian translation of the Bible goes all the way back to 170 A.D. The Egyptian translation of the Bible goes back to 200 to 250 A.D. And the Latin translation of the, Old Testament, or the New Testament goes back to 386 A.D. Now, there are 8,000 copies of the Latin version of the Bible that was done in 386. 8,000. There are over 1,000 copies of the other two that have survived. So, what we're doing is we're not depending on one document that says you have to believe this document alone we're saying you put together a thousand, you put together eight thousand, and then you look at what they say, and you'll be convinced they say exactly what God intended for them to say. A fifth thing, quotations. 
the, the writings of early Christians provided a number of quotations of Scripture that confirmed that that was Scripture. Incidentally, it's a kind of an amazing thing. The devil couldn't get a handle on this. Some of those who were opponents of Christianity helped us a great deal by quoting the Scriptures. They, they, they knew the Scriptures and they quoted them even though they opposed them. And so we look at their quotes and the quotes of Christians. They're just the same. Origen, who lived in the 2nd century A.D., quoted 5,745 verses from all the books of the New Testament. Tertullian, who lived in around 200 A.D., quoted 300 verses. Clement, in 194 A.D., quoted 380 verses. Irenaeus quoted 767 verses. Polycarp, who probably lived around 165 or died around 165, quoted 36 verses. And Justin Martyr quoted many, many verses. Now you put all those together, folks, and you see a lot of evidence for God's Word being correct. On on the back of your... uh, Well, let me just mention this first before I say that. If these ancient Christians who lived anywhere from about 70 A.D. to 200 A.D., if they quoted extensively from the New Testament, and that matches what our New Testament says, then the New Testament had to be complete. Because they, remember I told you one quoted all from all books, and they were already circulating among Christians as the Word of God. Let me tell you this, there are far less copies of Homer, Plato, Socrates than there are of the Bible. The oldest copies of anything we have from those three men don't come near the dates of the originals as they were written. In fact, some of those copies are 900 years removed from when they were written. Now, anybody throw out Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, because we have 900-year-old copies of what they wrote. The writings of Shakespeare have been in existence only about 400 years. They've been copied many times, largely on printing presses. But in each of the 37 plays of Shakespeare there are about 100 readings still in dispute. And a large number of them actually affect the passage in which they occur, how it ought to be. On the back of your lesson sheet, Eddie has provided a chart, and and I'll not go into that because we're just about out of time, but that chart will show you about ancient writings and the numbers of copies that we have, and you, as you make your way down that list, you certainly see that we have far, far more copies of God's Word. Okay, I think that evidence certainly depicts the truth that what you and I have is God's Word. Now, I'm not talking this morning, because we don't have time, 
I'm not talking this morning about some other factors in how our Bible came to us. I'm not talking uh, this morning about textual criticism. That is examining the text and, and, and corresponding and seeing the meaning of it. True textual criticism is a proof of God's Word. A lot of critics think they are textual critics, but what they're really showing is they're just antagonists toward God's Word. I'm also not talking about translations, and that's an issue that has to be dealt with entirely separately. You and I, I, I'm assuming you can. If anybody can, you tell me. You and I can't really read the Old Testament in Hebrew. I took Hebrew. I can't read it today. I wish I'd have kept up with it. I, I, my minor in college was Greek, New Testament Greek. I can't read my Greek New Testament like I once did. Jay understands that. We, we get we get lax in performing that. But if I really worked hard enough at it, I could, and he could too. But most of us are not going to ever read in Hebrew, and we're not going to read in Greek. And so what we need is we need an English version of the Bible that we can read in our own language. There have been a lot of translations. I would just say this. Not every translation is a good translation. Some are better than others. Because when you get to that point of translation, then you are dependent on the translators looking at the text in the original language and making sure that you're getting the real words of the text. Some translations have assumed that they help us by telling us what they think the writer meant rather than what the writer said. And I think the safest course in a translation is for you and I to have what the writer said and then we try to figure out what he meant by what he said. I don't want somebody else telling me this is what we think he meant by that, so we'll just change the words to tell you what we think. It's a very difficult matter to criticize translations. You, you, forgive me if anybody knows who I'm talking about, okay? We had a man here who, in my earliest time here, would often say, but the King James says this. I wasn't using the King James, but the King James says this. And his assumption was that the King James said it had to be right. I'm not, a, I'm not an opponent of the King James Version. Okay, this is a great translation. But listen, it's over 400 years old, and English has changed a lot. And many of the words, if we're not willing to look up the meaning of some King James words, we're not going to know what they really say. But, but what I'm saying is, I don't want anybody to say, but my version says this, therefore it has to be right because it's my version. You have to do some study and research and thinking. Is this correct? Incidentally, we have materials in the library that address these issues. One of the better little books, and I think we probably have a copy in the library, but if we don't, I have a copy you can use. Jimmy Gibbeton, a great preacher now did, wrote Inspiration and Authority of the Scriptures. Deals with a lot of these issues. If you are interested in pursuing it further, you certainly can. 
Let's hold the Word of God in honor. David, presumed to be the writer of Psalm 119 and verse 72, said, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. Again in the 119th Psalm, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And then again in Psalm 119, verse 160, the entirety, listen, the entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Let's believe that. Let's defend the Bible. Let's don't let people put it down. Because if they put this down, then you need to ask them, what is your source of hope for the future? They don't have one. Thanks for being here today. I appreciate your presence.